Today is the second Sunday of Advent, a season of waiting and expectation. Today we light the candle symbolizing joy and begin with readings from the prophet Isaiah and the Gospel of Mark. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This week we meditate on the many shades of joy, the joy of the people of Israel, weary and waiting, receiving their long-hoped-for deliverer, and Mary's unexpected joy in bearing God's promised one in her very being. In this season, we celebrate with a joy that transcends circumstance and human capacity. We live in the paradoxical way of the kingdom, crying out to God for the parts of our world still waiting to be made new, and rejoicing that in all things, God's promised presence, Emmanuel, is always with us. And so with the words of the psalmist, church, let us pray together. Lord God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen. And now we'll have the reading of this morning's teaching text. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, but the the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, this time of year uh, is so interesting. It is full of so much beauty, um, so much symbolism and hope. Um, For many of us, a lot of expectation, but it is also a time that can be uh, pregnant with grief and um, where where we feel loaded down with extra, extra burdens of memories and challenges that we've faced throughout this year or years, years past. And so we just invite your presence, God. We just confess as a simple gathered community week after week, so we, we come to hear your word and, and not just to add a little bit to our minds, God, but to grow, to be your sons and daughters, to know you uh, thoroughly um, in every aspect of our life. And so we bring ourselves before you again as we are uh, easing further into this Advent season of, of waiting, of expectation, of hope. I, I think Advent... God, is so helpful for us because it acknowledges the delay in some of the promises that we're hoping for most, and how do we live in that delay? And so I pray, come Holy Spirit. You know, the miracle, God, is that you know all across this room and all the diversity that's represented here in, in, in each individual life, what, what, what we need, and somehow you're able to minister to us um, specifically and particularly, even in a group, even in a family like this, and so... We thank you. We give you honor. You, you, are, the, you are the king of kings. And, and even if we're introduced to you as a baby, a vulnerable child, um, we are learning to trust you that you are indeed king. So uh, give us faith this morning. Minister to us in the ways that we know and the ways that we don't even know that we need you. And we just ask, come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We, uh, we left off last week. First week of Advent was last week. We're in, we're in week two. Um, We left off last week with the following verses, um, which I'm about to read. And this might sound about like what you would expect. You know, there's a phenomenon of Christmas and Easter Christians. And if that's you, you are so welcome here. Come at Christmas, come at Easter. It's totally fine. Um, 
that's not the sum total of our hope, our hopes for this community by any means. But if, if that's you, we're so glad to have you. And uh, one of the reasons you come into church at Christmas, if it's the only time of year that you come, is because it's fantastic. It's like one of the highlights. It's one of the moments that that that, that, that God is coming in a tangible way into the human story, and it's it's poetic, it's powerful, it's mysterious, it's challenging, it's dark, um, and so. We ended last week with the type of verses you would expect to hear at at, at church on a Sunday around Christmas. And it's this. John 1 verses 4 through 5 says, In him was life, and that life was the light. Of all mankind, right? This, that's perfect for a greeting card. This is a Christmas greeting card material. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The opening of John's gospel, remember there were three gospel accounts of Jesus' life already in circulation at the time that John wrote this one in. And the, the opening of John's gospel is unmistakably cosmic in its scope. It is, it is grandiose on, on purpose. It goes all the way back to the beginning. It starts with the first three words of the Torah in the beginning. And it, it says all the way back to that point, God has been planning this move of redemption. So it goes all the way back to the beginning, but then it pulls in even the latest threads of philosophy of the day. It pulls in the logos, the sort of what even non-believers in Yahweh or any monotheistic God were, were, were sort of batting around as the ideas of what, what sort of holds our world together. The opening lines are intentionally sweeping. And maybe for that reason, you sort of write them off into the sentimentality of Christmas. It's like... Yeah, the light and the darkness, I've heard this before, and all the way back in the beginning, I'm not even sure how much I feel about, like, you Christian people thinking of Genesis as like a, a textbook for the origins of the world, that feels a, little, feels a little naive to me. It may feel challenging to access or appreciate the beginning of John's gospel, but then by verse 6, six if that's you, there's a pretty helpful swing, <laughs> Because by verse 6, it says, there was a man sent from God, and I get it, sent from God still feels like the cosmic stuff we were just talking about, whose name was John. Whose name was John. A, 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 a very ordinary name. And to, to, in, in case you don't know, this is the point in the Christmas story where the wild cousin shows up. Every great Christmas story has the moment where the wild cousin shows up. You, you, know, you know this. Um, we, 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 home Alone, uh, the Griswolds have, have, have this situation. So we've gone from that, this, this moment of cosmic poetry, and, and the, the language in the Greek is technical and beautiful and inspiring. The cosmic poetry of the first few verses of this gospel to a crazy cousin shows up, and we've gotten there in one, one verse. It's like you're having a nice moment in the living room, and then Kramer comes bursting through the door. It's how you should feel when you get to verse 6 of, of John's gospel. It's, this is Cousin Eddie pulling in to the driveway with, you know, with, his, with his RV uh, in, in Christmas vacation. So, of course, John, who we're going to come to call John the Baptist, just to differentiate from John the Evangelist who writes the gospel, but uh, John the Baptist, of course, he's not presented to us as, as crazy, but he does live a bizarre life, uh, even by the standards of his, his own day. He would have been the person at the Christmas party that you might be most uh, eager to catch up with. What on earth have you been up to, uh, up to this year? Do you have someone like this in your family? If you're not raising your hand, you, seriously, not rhetorically, do you have someone like this, the crazy cousin who you can't wait to see what they've been up to this year? If you're not raising your hand, it's because you are that person. <laughs> so just admit that. That's how your family sees you. Maybe you should have raised your hand. We'll give you an opportunity to amend your hand raised later. Um, I, I have a cousin, I have a cousin like this, and I'm, I don't know how much this is going to relate to the story, but I've been wanting a chance for like 10 years to tell you about my cousin Jason, and here it is. So, uh, I, he, he, he was, uh, he was older than me, so that adds some mystery to it. He was several years older than me, uh, but he was definitely one or two notches more wild than anyone else in our family, and it became one of the things I looked forward to most when our family was getting together around the holidays. He, he, like I said, he was older than me. I remember being really young and Jason coming in and he was like actually shredded up his entire body. He'd been chewed up by road rash because he just crashed his skateboard going down some insane hill somewhere near his house. And I was just like, that's the most coolest thing I've ever seen ever. And he was like not even crying about it. And I'm like, you know, like I'm at the age where you cry about everything, paper cut. He's just like shredded and bleeding. He's like, hey guys, Merry Christmas. Comes in, he's just like pat, pat, patting himself down. 
Um, he, he, he taught me how to shoot a shotgun off of his back porch. This is South Carolina. I'm just telling you some of the things that made J- Jason amazing to me. Uh, he went to art school in Atlanta, which, man, dangerous, wild, crazy. Um, uh, and he has stories. And, and uh, he, 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 a man tried to carjack him in Atlanta. And he, and he, he got on a, a, he's fighting this. He literally fought a carjacker off with a knife. And like the guy was stabbed and ran into a bank. And, and I was just like, Jason, tell me more. What's it like in Atlanta? Um, when eventually Jason became a follower of Jesus, it was like a, a monumental moment in our, in our family. This like wild, artistic man who was already always sort of living on the fringe and exploring things the way you wish you had the courage to. He, he comes to faith in Jesus and, and uh, he goes like just like you would expect him to do. He's like, I'm going to go build cabinets for a Bible school in Argentina now. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that's what you're going to do, Jason. And so he goes down there. He builds cabinets for a while. He learns Spanish fluently. And then he's like, this is not quite enough. So he just gets onto a boat and, and go. he like books passage on a, on, a, on a little dinghy and goes down the Amazon into the, into the jungle and then just gets off the boat, walks into a village and lives there. That's it. That's so fantastic. This is my real cousin Jason. He just lives with people in the Amazon. It's amazing. And, and he's learned Spanish now, so he just reads the Bible to them. He fixes small engines and sleeps in a hammock for like several years. And then he just gets back on a boat and leaves the Amazon. You want a cousin like this. I mean, this is what holiday meals are, 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 are made for. Um, I, these are the kind of things that deeply impress a younger cousin. I got to spend three months with Jason. We lived together in, in China. And he finally, like, turned to me. He was, like, annoyed. He's like, you know, you're the only one who ever asked me about these stories. And I was like, really? Man, I want to write a book about you called Jason, My Cousin. Um, and we lived in China together. And I just realized he's like a notch wilder than I. He learned the language faster. Like all of us are like, the, the, to take a taxi in this, this particular part of China was like half of a cent. And Jason's like, I'm saving money and taking the bus. I'm like, how do you know the bus system? It's incredible. Anyway, he's inspiring to me. That's, that's what I want you to know. The sermon's going to be downhill from here. Just kidding. Jesus had an older cousin. You see how it ties in? John the Baptist. Also wild, also prone to skateboard accidents. Just kidding, that's not in the text. But um, John's going to be mentioned a bunch more in in the gospel uh, that that, that we're reading. But the introduction of him that we get in the gospel of Luke is particularly helpful for a kind of understanding the aura around him, the type of person that he was. There was no way to take John when you first met him and just think, okay, I'm just going to have sort of an ordinary conversation. This is someone that you would kind of expect is going to cut through all the frivolities and cut cut through all the small talk and going to be about what you're really going, like the family member who's who's lived enough adventure in their life that they're like, what's really going on with you? How are you? You can't wait to have like a real meaty, meaningful conversation with him. Mark 1 describes him this way. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. What a cousin Jesus has. He, he is the character, though, that, that brings the cosmic language of the opening of John's gospel squarely back to earth. For as, as, as bizarre as he is, his, his very coming had been promised hundreds of years before by the, by the prophets uh, of Israel. That he was going, that someone like this man was going to come in the spirit of Elijah and prepare the way for Israel's Messiah. And so there had been 400 years of silence. You think it's been a long time since you felt God was speaking and directing your life in a clear way? There had been 400 years between the close of, 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 the, of the minor prophets of the Old Testament canon and, and the opening of, of the story of Jesus, 400 years, and all of a sudden this, this obscure promised forerunner of Messiah shows up on the scene in an unexpected way, but John is, is a forerunner. He shows us in a very tangible way something about the pattern of God's arrival in the world. Something about the way Jesus' incarnation is going, to, is going to break into the world. 
So this is the first thing I want you to see is John is showing forth before it happens a little bit about the pattern of God's arrival. And we're just going to run, run through a few of the, of the high points here. The first is the, the prophetic birth. John the Baptist experiences a prophetic birth in the same way that Jesus does. We have a detailed narrative surrounding the lead up to his coming into the world. His parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were full of faith and hope. Zechariah was serving as a priest, but they had grown old without a child. Now, that might just be a life choice for someone in our, in our world, but when, when there, 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 there wasn't public works and an expectation that Social Security or, 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 or a medical system was going to be available to take care of you in, in your old age, your family was absolutely necessary to do so. So a couple that had no heir, a couple that had no children were in profound risk of growing old and having no one to take care of them. And so it was, it was a big deal that, that Elizabeth and Zechariah had no child. But Zechariah, as I said, was a priest, and he and Jerusalem, uh, he and Elizabeth go to Jerusalem to serve their assigned period of time, and it, it tells us in the text that, that Zechariah was chosen by lot to go in and minister in the temple in the, holy, the holiest of holy places. He was there, he was going to offer a prayer and fragrant offering before God. He, he, he got this assignment while he's in the holy place, all right, so you can imagine this. Their time has come up by lot. They're dealing with faith, but they're also dealing with disappointment. They show up on the scene. They don't know what their, their, their uh, Zechariah doesn't know what his, his, his service is going to be, but he gets drawn by lot to go into the, whole, the this honor of going into the holy of holies, offering incense, offering prayer. He would have had to prepare himself. He goes in there. He's praying. Who knows what his expectations of this experience was? Maybe he thought, I'll feel as close to God in this moment as I ever have in my entire life. All of a sudden, something that certainly was outside of expectations his expectations happens, and a voice speaks to him. He's confronted by an angelic being, Gabriel. If you're like already like skeptical about the Bible and Jesus stories, this is not going to help you necessarily, but he's confronted by an angel. There you go. It's Christmas, and this happens. The, the, the angel Gabriel tells him that Elizabeth, his wife, is going to have a son. Now, it's, they're past the, the age where that's possible, but he tells them that his son is going to be a fulfillment of God's promise that goes all the way back to Malachi. And he literally takes the words of the, of the prophet from centuries before and he says, you're going to be in the stream of this fulfillment. This is going to happen. And Zechariah has, has a crucial failure of faith in that moment. Honestly, it's a little bit weird because he asks a question that sounds a little bit similar to what happens when an angel shows up to Mary, but there's a little bit different uh, in the two, and there's certainly a difference in the reaction of heaven to the two questions because John, I mean, uh, Zechariah says, how can I be sure of this? And in like a Seinfeld moment, the angel Gabriel's like, what do I got to do? I show up here in the temple. I'm an angelic being. Where do you think I came from? And now you're like, how am I going to accomplish this? How about where did I come from? I'm an angel. This is my understanding of his monologue. But he says to the angel, how can I be sure of this? And the angel's like, you're not speaking anymore. That's it for you. You're not speaking for." Until the baby's born, you're not talking. And, and, and that's just how I imagine it going. You can ma- make it up in your own mind. The text gives some space. But Zechariah ends up having to remain silent through the rest of the pregnancy. And in that silence, something happens to him. He begins to realize that this promise really is true, that this promise is, is totally unexpectedly his family being swept into the story of God's breaking into the world to bring his kingdom. And when he opens his mouth, he's full of humility, he's full of love, he's, he's full of celebration of, of, of this beautiful moment. There's, there's no one in the scriptures before John the Baptist that has such an exceptional lead up to their birth, maybe Isaac, but but. This is obviously God is beginning to work in a profound way. So John has an exceptional start to his life. He has a prophetic birth. The next thing that we see is that he is obedient. He's willing to step into the plan that God God has for him. The, The little bit that we know is that John's life of obedience to God is not just a simple, ordinary obedience. The angel describes... Some of it when he, when he meets Zechariah in the temple. But there's, there's a prophetic clue even about that first sort of sighting. Zechariah is in the holy of holies. Later we learn that John the Baptist has taken a Nazarite vow. 
The Nazarite vow, amongst other things, was a group of people who, who lived um, with, with, in a certain fasted way in order to be ready at any moment to go into the Holy of Holies. They were people who were out in the regular world who were saying, we want to live as a prophetic picture of expecting God's presence. And so to, to, to be an, a Nazarite meant that you didn't drink any alcohol, that you didn't cut your hair, um, that you didn't go near any dead bodies. I don't know if that's tempting for you, but... Um, Right, these to, to us, they might seem like relative, relatively arbitrary requirements, but for the Nazarites, they were a vow of consecration to God to say at any moment, we want to be ready to interact with the manifest presence of Yahweh. So they were a living picture in the middle of their community saying, we're willing to forego some of the comforts that make life more manageable in order to say we want to remain hungry, <laughs> For the presence of God. And, and most of them just did it for a short period of time. But it looks like that John the Baptist took this vow for his life. And so he was one of those people that you can just sort of tell after not a very much time around them. That the words of their mouth were matched with the integrity of their life. And this gave John's message prominence. It gave it weight. Um, he, he grew. He, the sort of next stage of his life is that he grew in, in, in prominence. There were many people who were willing to listen to his message because... There seemed to be a power associated with his life. And the message that John preached was, return to God with your whole heart and don't hold anything back. When people could see he was living that way himself. And so it says that great crowds came to hear John the Baptist and be baptized by him. Great crowds. This is... Right, this is the thing that we start to understand in the story. He's weird, he's, he's an aesthetic, and he, he, he's got all these bizarre things about him, but great crowds, like, can't argue with the results, right? The American way, he grows in prominence. There it is, he's a success. But then there's this sort of bizarre decrease that takes place in John's life. For those who get close enough to really hear his message, not just the headlines from a distance, but those who get near him know that he wasn't directing people to himself, that he wasn't out there just to grow his own stature, to grow his, his own reputation, but he's directing people to this coming Messiah. In the third chapter of John's gospel, he famously says, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater, I must become less. This is the perfect sort of tagline that you put on a youth group shirt before you take kids on a mission trip. This is fantastic. He must become greater, I must become less. So be quiet in the bus, please. He must become greater, I must become less. Sounds fantastic. It's one of those sentiments inside of Christianity that's wonderful. But when you live it, there is a pain associated with it that is really challenging. Like, to experience the humbling where you're out of sight, where, where you're not recognized, where you might not be appreciated in the way that you could be, that you should be. And so, sure enough, the crowd slowly stopped following John and they begin to follow Jesus because he's being successful at the very thing that he's sent to do. And yet he still has to deal with the pain of that decrease. One of my most clear memories from my a year of training that I did before planting this church, and I'm forever grateful for Redeemer Presbyterian. They had a program called the Fellows Program, and um, I had been listening to Tim Keller's sermons for years, and so it was it was an astounding privilege to get to experience even a, a small bit of mentorship from this leader. And I was always struck in our sessions with 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 Keller how honest he was. And and one one of the sessions he was talking about when he had been tremendously ill at, at a period of time before this in his ministry, and he was talking about how the doctors had had to do a surgery, and they said in the aftermath of the surgery we're going to have to give you some some medication that's going to limit some hormone distribution in your body in the normal way. So they basically said, for somewhere between three to six months, you're going to be depressed. And he knew he was going to be depressed. And he knew why he was going to be depressed. Like, some of us experience that and we don't have the reasons for it. And you spend so much time. He knew those two big questions. And yet, I was struck because he said it didn't help at all. I knew why I was going to be depressed. I knew there was a medical reason. I knew that it was normal. And I knew that more than likely it was going to end and it still didn't make it easy to get through. This is a reality for John. And it's why it's so important in the Advent story because some of you know even when you're following God, even when you're right in step with God's plan, you know a profound amount of depression. <laughs> you're like, where are you, God? K 
can you be true in the midst of this? Some of you know uh, a tremendous trembling amount of anxiety to the point of panic attacks or a low steady sort of thrum of anxiety in your mind. Some of you know a struggle with addiction. Some of you know a profound and, and seemingly like black hole of grief that you've been into. Some of you guys know relational strife and, tra- and, and trauma. And John the Baptist is crucial <laughs> in the Advent story for this exact reason. Because he deals with delay, he deals with disappointment, he, de- he deals with dis- di- dis- diminishment, he deals with obscurity. He deals with all the things that we're hoping Christmas won't be about. Give us, and the light broke through the darkness and shined. That's the Christmas I want. And the crowds left me and I felt alone and I questioned whether I should have believed in the first place. And I trembled alone in the wilderness because my, my, my animal skins weren't really keeping me warm and I wondered what was it all about. You know, that's the Christmas story too. Very important moment in the Advent story is the disappointment that John has to go through counting the cost and he knew it was coming Keller knew it was coming and yet in the middle it doesn't take the pain away John saw his influence steadily decrease until he finds himself in obscurity from such illustrious beginnings he ends up more and more in obscurity as people leave him to follow Jesus but John presses on with his prophetic prophetic vocation you get a sense somehow that even in the, in the immense challenging, challenges that he was facing, he somehow still knew the support of the presence of God. I think that's really important to hold on to. But, but finally, if you're wondering when the story turns, John gets arrested. Um, he's thrown into jail. Um, we see him sort of trying to work out, is this really part of the plan? And the one, right, the one who famously, when we see him show up in the, in the vigor of, his, of the prominence of his, of his youthful ministry, and he says, I'm not worthy to untie this, this man's sandal strap. I must become less. He must increase. This is not, I, I, I baptize you with water, but this one baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. That same John, just a few months later, says, are you really the one... He's in jail and he sends his followers to say, are you really the one or should we wait for another? Like I was out there playing the trumpet for you, but now I'm in jail and no one's around and what's going on? Some of you know that type of disappointment up close and personal in your walk with God. And I want to say it is welcome. And Advent is a huge welcome mat to your pain, to your disillusionment, to your sense of delay, to your anxiety, to your depression, to your addiction, to everything that you think disqualifies you or makes you left out or leaves you locked alone in a cage of of just yourself. (laughs) And if we're honest, we've all been there. This is why we so need Advent. John gets arrested and in a cell he's like, is this it? (laughs) I can so relate to that question, is this it? Jesus, I don't know how you would expect him to respond, but he, he responds back. He's like, just tell John the things that are happening. Tell him that people that didn't see are seeing. Tell him people that didn't walk are walking. Tell, t- tell him people that were estranged and broken are being healed and put back together. And, and yes, this is what he's been expecting. And so John faces even the darkest, hardest, most chapter of his life his, it, it, with faith. His situation does not circumstantially improve, and the reasons are not really inspiring. There's a big party, and this woman named Herodias, her daughter, is is frustrated because because John the Baptist has been this prophetic voice against the royal marriage because it was it was out of wedlock, and this and, and King Herod stole someone's wife, and blah blah blah, and she speaks out against this, and and John speaks out against her, and so her mom gets upset and is basically like, "Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter for a wedding gift." Not the greatest, most inspiring reason to die, and yet this is how John is executed. His head is cut off. He's brought in, into the royal court. He's a forerunner of Jesus all the way down to his death. His death for something really that he was innocent of. Uh, certainly shouldn't have been worth dying for. But if you look at the pattern, right, well, I won't put them all on the screen, but just imagine these in a list, prophetic birth, obedience, 
prominence, but then decrease, then obscurity, and then death. This is exactly the pattern of Messiah. This is exactly the pattern that Jesus is going to walk, and John walks that pattern as a forerunner. But the one thing, the marked difference between John's story and Jesus' story is that Jesus' story doesn't end at death. And because of that, John's story doesn't have to end at death, and your story doesn't have to end at death. John is so helpful for us because he shows us a path that Jesus is willing to walk on our behalf, but he shows us by walking it himself. I'm just going to read a little bit here. John is crucial to the Advent narrative because he reminds us that Advent is, is not simply about some distant cosmic hope that is coming way off somewhere, but it is about dealing with real life, real pain, real disappointment. The tension of a life with God and the highs of lows. You want to know the things that Advent is helpful for dealing with? I'll just give you a quick list. Not being the center. Dealing with profound, bitter disappointment. Working in obscurity. Some of you know this, right? Your entire career trajectory is like work in obscurity to the bone And then maybe 10 years from now, you'll get the promotion that you need if they haven't started an entirely new system by that point. What a risk. Working in obscurity. Rejection. People leaving you to go to someone else. Pain. Defeat. How about great intentions but unmet expectations? Some of you, that defines your life of faith. I had childlike wonder when I came into a relationship with God. I feel like I've dealt with a lot of unmet expectations. John the Baptist is your man. He's a true witness to an only partially fulfilled promise. If you have a problem with the Bible because you think it's too triumphalistic or everyone's story always ends up with answered prayer and a rosy finish, John the Baptist is the one for you. He went from wild freedom, a life of immense promise, to becoming a wandering wild man but who is deeply connected to God. And then he goes from that wilderness of freedom into a cell and then to execution on fluke trumped up charges. Today we lit the candle of joy, and it is a substantial thing to say that John knew something about real joy, not just like superficial happiness, but something that can sustain you in the real highs and lows of life. Whatever else Advent is offering us, it is offering us that, a candle of joy that is really lit in the very real darkness, the type of darkness that feels like it is creeping, the type of darkness that feels like it is surrounding you. I got a message from a friend yesterday. Some of you have heard me mention him. Some of you will have heard him preach in this very room. Um, Rob Jones from, from Dublin, uh, who's a partner in, in, our, in our life and ministry in, in really significant ways uh, over the last few years. And we've been praying, I've been praying every night with my kids for Rob's brother, Graham, because he's been wrestling with cancer for the last two years. And I can't tell you, like, praying for healing, whatever. I've had so much faith that Graham was going to be better. I've, I've written him encouraging notes. I've, I've had times where I was just, like, overcome with the presence of God, believing for a miracle for Graham. And last night, Rob calls me and tells me that Graham passed. And earlier in the week, uh, just small detail, my computer broke for good. So I didn't, um, I didn't write any of the talk uh, yet. And I didn't get to write it till after this message. So it's like, okay, your, your friend, it's, it's Rob, you know, who's just a few years older than me, his, his younger brother who has a family, who has three young children, who is just ordained. He just left his job in an act of profound faith for years of successfully running a company to join the, the uh, Anglican priesthood in Ireland. He'd just been ordained as a priest, and, and I'm sitting there and talking with Rob, and like, what does Advent have to say about this? And I'm so grateful for John the Baptist. (laughs) I'm so grateful that Advent hope, whatever it is, it has to be tested. It has to work in that setting. And Rob is like, pathologically upbeat. (laughs) 
He's such a happy guy. He's cracking me up on the phone uh, on FaceTime yesterday, telling me about his last moments with his brother. He's like, the night before he died, the guy was just snoring. I couldn't sleep. I'm like, Graham, you got to be quiet. I'm not going to get any rest in here. I'm like, man, (laughs) you're crazy. Well, then he just talked about moments of peace. He talked about worshiping. Uh, He talked about Graham's last words, I love you, Rob. Talked about knowing that his brother was slipping into an inheritance that we're all expecting and longing for. And I tell you what, if Advent works at all, it has to work there. And it was so beautiful to have a testimony from the front lines of grief saying, our hope is a hope. Our joy is not superficial happiness, but it is real joy. And I'm so grateful for the last weeks I had with my brother. I'm so grateful for those last days. I'm so grateful that his family is going to be surrounded by the family of God and taken care of in these moments. And, and, and you know that's like, that's the headline of the first few verses. <laughs> the real reality of those challenges are going to be profound. But that's what Advent is about. That's what an inbreaking hope. You don't need light in the dark if there's no dark. <laughs> but you and I are so familiar with the dark And God's saying, in spite of it, I'm breaking in. And in the most unexpected ways, and in the ways that are out of the way, in the ways that seem obscure, and the ways that seem already defeated, in the ways that seem discouraged, anxious, depressed, broken, you know, sort of seething with cancer, I am breaking into those moments too. And Rob said back to me, right, the trite thing you say when someone dies, now he's really healed. And this is what we've been asking for. But it is something to believe it, that ultimately, like, we're experiencing pain, but, but Graham is dancing this Advent away. I told Rob a lot about my own dad, and I kind of hope, like, somewhere they're connecting. Dad's probably like, here's a Marlboro Light, welcome. I don't know if they let you smoke there. We'll get into that theology later. What a thing that God would send as the height of this story of hope would send this character, John, who sort of descends from this wide space into a cell. But ultimately, that's what Jesus does, right? Jesus is narrowing down his entire life. His options are getting more and more limited until finally he's literally pinned to a cross to bear the burden of our brokenness and sin. Why? So that he can offer up the most lavish possible welcome in the world to us. I love what Dorothy Sayers says, and I'm going to use this every Advent forever, so just deal with it. The incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and thought it well worth his while. John the Baptist is a huge Advent arrow pointing to this reality that God is not attempting to build a new world while ignoring the current one. He is building the new world right in the midst. Incarnation means that God is plunging into the mess of our actual reality to plant the seeds of the age to come. Plunging into the mess of your actual reality to plant the seeds of the age to come. I have so much more and I wasted so much time on point one. What should I do? Great question. Great question. I'm going to just hurry. You're like, you could cut it off. That's an idea. I want to say a couple of sentences about John's life because it is a light that expose, a life that exposes the dark. And the, the things that you see showing up in John's life are, are not the, the sexy, glamorous things that you might, might expect for someone whose life shines in the darkness. I'll give you three attributes of John's life that are really profound that I want you to hold on to this Advent season. The first is holiness. 
is that, is that John was willing with like holiness and wholeheartedness really go together when you're, when you're talking about union with God, that John was willing to live his life in, in a wholehearted way committed to God, that he was willing to give up many, many comforts of this world in order to walk in step with God. He's living a life basically that doesn't make any sense unless you're living for another world. But I want to ask us this question, right? He took a vow so that he would be ready to go into the presence of God at any moment. What would your life look like if you lived expecting the presence of God to be a reality? That is a question that, that John the Baptist's life asks us. What would your life look like if you lived it in a sense with an awareness of the presence of God? What would your life look like if you lived as a prophetic picture not to just getting the small sort of uh, superficial comforts of this world. Not just getting the trappings of other people's temporary recognition. But you said, I'm living from a deeper source. I'm living out of a prophetic picture. I'm living from a place where my whole heart is committed to God and his kingdom. And I'm expecting the very best is yet to come. And so I'm willing to lose to really win. That's John's picture of holiness. The second thing that I want to show you from his life is generosity. And we're not going to go into to this so much for time's sake. But John has asked a few times, like people who come up to him who are inspired by his life, who say, I want to, I want to share of what you've got. And John will say, like, you're expecting, like, a philosophical, like, nugget to drip off of his lips and change someone's paradigm. And he's like, you got two coats? Give one of them away. Yes, and, and then What? And, and, and then go to the top of the mountain and then and sit crisscross applesauce and then wait and then the lightning. What else do I do? He's like, you got two coats? Give one of the coats away. Generosity. He lives in holiness and, and the inspiration of it is, is generosity is that he sees a practical need of his fellow human being and he's not just like, I'm on my own story, on my own upward trajectory. I've got two coats. I'm gonna give you one. You're like, John, you wear, you wear fur, I'm cool. You eat locusts, I don't want to share your meal, whatever. But John is saying, listen, the heart of, of this holiness is, is a willingness to pour your life out for someone else. And some of you know the joy. We lit the candle of joy, and some of you know the joy of generosity. Right? We live in a culture that is built on, in a sense, like hoarding at every level for ourselves. And we imagine that there's a chance that that's somehow with us going to be different than everyone else and it's going to lead to freedom and joy. But really when we try the sacrificial act of giving away our extra coat, giving away our extra time, giving away our attention, giving away our love, embracing the other, we actually find this is the magical place of love and joy and freedom that we've been hoping for and gathering and hoarding more for ourselves wasn't satisfying at all. He shows us holiness, he shows us generosity, and the last thing is contentment. That is something our world is in desperate need of. You know what it's like to have enough? To take a deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth and sit still and sit in the quiet and have enough. That is a gift. That is a gift. Later in the New Testament, this, this refrain, godliness with contentment is great gain. All right, we live in America, Brooklyn, 2018, the end of it. We know some great gain, and we know that it doesn't always lead to contentment. John was living a story where he was willing to go into a cell to have nothing because his heart really was attached to this other treasure that is rooted in relationship. These are the rare and beautiful qualities of the kingdom, holiness, generosity, and contentment. John demonstrates them. And so in a very real way, he's showing that the kingdom is often hidden in plain sight. That suffering love is what Jesus comes to demonstrate. John, as a forerunner, uses that suffering love to shape our expectations. Human beings are famously bad at expectations. You know that, right? Like, so many times, like, you'll come out of the end of something that you were sure was going to be a, a hellacious hardship, 
And you're like, you know what? That, that, like, I traveled to this place. I thought it was going to be really hard, and I saw a ton of beauty there. I went through this experience, this illness, and I thought that it was going to be just the absolute worst, and I learned a ton about myself. And like, so often, our expectations on the front end of something that we imagine is going to be hard, on the back end, we look back with hindsight and, and, and now tremendous understanding, and we realize coming through that, that, that place where I was offered the opportunity to suffer out of love was one of the best chances of my life. Suffering love can begin to shape our expectations of what makes a wonderful, joyful life. And the last thing is suffering love saves lives. There were many who were just walking around blinded by their own story. And the prophetic picture of John's life wakes them up to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. How many of you, never mind what 2018 was like, how many of you want to look back at the end of 2019? And know that a few people tasted and saw what God was really like. And it awakened their hope, their expectation, their belief to God in a new way because they came in contact with you. Not because you're so fantastic on your own right, but because you are an image bearer of Yahweh. Because you are one who can, who can decrease so that he might increase and shine through you, shine through your life in a particular way. And you know, if you're thinking that sounds pretty mundane, it will be through your life in a way that it could be through no one else's life. When God is shining in your life, you do not le- lose your uniqueness or who you are. Actually, the uniqueness of who you are shines all the clearer as you are filled with the life of God. How many people at the end of the next year will have experienced the rescuing, profound, healing love of God because of your life, because of our life, because of our church. That's a question John's life puts to us. A friend was telling me, and this will be the last, last story. I promise we're ending, okay? Christmas gift. A friend was telling me about this group. Um, a few friends I've, I've, I've had recently have been bringing up this idea of, of 24-hour prayer. Um, there's a few movements around, around the world where people have set, set aside rooms or places and said, for, for, for as long as we can sustain it, we want to have people praying in this place 24 hours a day, and they break it up into hour-long shifts, and people are praying. He was telling about this group in Ibiza. Is that how you say it? Spain? Say it louder so I know how to say it. Okay, cool. Somewhere in Spain... Um, there was this group, and this city in particular, they said, was like sort of like a Vegas vibe. And so the groups, when, when they were praying, they were praying. But when, they were not, when it wasn't their shift to be in the prayer room, they were driving around the town in what they called the vomit van. And, and what they did was they just literally drove all night around the city, and they found people who were literally staggering around, who were so drunk that they couldn't function. Many times they were getting sick on themselves, and they, they knew these people were really in danger of being robbed or, or, or just like literally dying on the street because they'd gotten so intoxicated. So they would pull them into the vomit van. You see where the name comes from. And they would drive them to safety. They would get them to the hospital if they needed to get to the hospital. They would, they would find a way to get them shelter until they were able. And, and to me, this is this picture of like, what do you want to do with your life? Drive the vomit van? <laughs> These people are never going to come back and thank you. They can't see straight. They're never going to come back and give you recognition. And you know what we're going to have to show for it? Chunks. It's awful. And yet they're saving lives. Their suffering love is saving life, and they're, they're, giving, <laughs> they're giving the love of Jesus in a tangible way in this, in this place. They're saying, we're going to be pleading for the kingdom to come, and then we're going to offer our hands and feet for the kingdom to come. That's one of the most profound life mottos you can ever have. <laughs> Trinity Grace, let's be those who plead with God for the kingdom to come, and then we offer our hands and feet, our vans, our, our extra time, our, our resume will, building workshop, our, our, our opportunity to give away in the Christmas offering out of our excess to meet others' needs. Let's say, let, let's pray that the kingdom would come and then say, God, how would you use me for the kingdom to come? Suffering love saves lives. And just like John the Baptist, the, the, the vomit van is not glamorous. It's, it's like eating locusts. And yet it is saving people, rescuing them. So here's what I want to say to close. You're like, you already said you were closing. Tricked ya. Don't sit out while the new world is coming. 
The, the sort of title of our Advent Reflections is The Birth of the Age to Come. And John is a herald of the age to come. And I just want to say this. Don't sit out while the new world is coming. And the clearest example I know of that is you remember the older brother in the prodigal son story? His brother comes back, right? He's been on the vomit van. <laughs> He's wasted everything. And not just like in a sentimental way, he literally wasted part of the, the, the family's inheritance. So when his dad runs out to him, which we love and brings tears to our eyes, especially when we feel like we've been living in a far off country and we need the embrace of God's grace, we love the story. But then think about the older brother. His this inheritance between the two of them's already been divided. So if the brother comes back and he gets a share again in the family's wealth, he's cutting in directly to older brother's share. There's a real cost at this guy being redeemed. An older brother sits outside the party that's being thrown for his return and he's steaming. And you know what? He has a really good reason. He's ex experienced defeat, <laughs> discouragement, delay, what he feels like a broken promises. All the things that John's Advent story is bringing up, the older brother had experienced personally. And so he's sitting out as the new world comes. Inside at the party where they're welcoming the one, he's like, you don't deserve it, I deserve it. And that is the one mentality that will keep you out of the tent where the party's being thrown. Don't sit out. Don't sit out while the new world is coming. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the honesty of your word. I pray that you would take all that we've talked about and you would make it like an arrow into each of our hearts, so specifically point, pointing to the thing that we need to hear from you today. Lead us, Holy Spirit, to know how to respond to your word. Father, I believe that there are, are some here who really need to examine the source of their life. They need another source that can provide joy instead of just superficial things. Some are being called to holiness. That combination of generosity and contentment that comes with it. God. I believe you're calling all of us and us as a church to lift up and point to Jesus. So speak to us, Holy Spirit, of how we're each to respond. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.